resurrection of the dead. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and are you still in sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection unto him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection unto him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, why do people mean being baptized? Otherwise, why do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I have fought with the beast of Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on in sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this is your shame. I've got a feeling I'm going to need that water this morning. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Rick Wellman, one of the elders. Kevin and I had loosely talked last week about the title of the sermon, and then I promptly forgot what that was until this morning. So, we'll leave the connection of the sermon and the title to the Spirit this morning. Suffice it to say, without a resurrection in our lives, there can be no gospel transformation. That was quite a passage that Mary just read for us, wasn't it? We have a strong case for the resurrection 
from the contrast and the implications that Paul puts forth. Paul addresses the problem here with the theology of some who don't believe that there is a resurrection. And that appears to have spread among some of the followers, hence why he needed to address this. If that weren't enough, toward the end of this passage today, as you just heard, we have some strong words about being baptized on behalf of the dead, as well as instructions about waking up from a drunken stupor and keeping bad company. No wonder Adam went on vacation this week. But, to Adam's credit and his mercy, he could have left me some much more difficult passages as he has already preached through in the last several months. So why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so important? And what is that very hope that we have in that resurrection? What are its implications? First of all, the evidence throughout the Bible is compelling. The famous lawyer, Sir Lionel Luku, if I got the pronunciation right, put it this way about the proof of the resurrection. He writes, The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. GotQuestions.com that I went to several times this week gives us four good reasons for the importance of the resurrection and Paul's defense here. There's the truth. The truth of the resurrection proves who Jesus is in the Old Testament and from what Jesus put forth during his time on earth. He appeared to well over 500 people, not as a ghost, but as his very physical being. And it's interesting to note and important, he could not have come as a judge at the final judgment unless he had in fact risen. How could someone who is dead judge us at the end? Then as the reality. The resurrection demonstrates that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And as we saw previously, God didn't leave Jesus for dead, but accepted his very sacrifice and brought him back to life. There's his almighty power, and I think this is the, the power and the security that I'll talk about, I think are more relevant to me, but you can't have them without that truth and that reality we spoke of. So we have His almighty power. The resurrection shows that God is all-powerful, even to raise us from the dead. None other than God can both spiritually and physically Bring one back to life. Sorry. Only God can give life, and that is the way it's been since the beginning when He breathed life in at the beginning of all time. But then there's security, that is, assurance. This act of resurrection guarantees that the bodies of those who believe in Christ will not remain dead, 
but can and will be raised unto eternal life. Paul gives us a taste of this in Romans 5.10, where he writes, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, then much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. His resurrection power raises us both spiritually and physically from sin and death to purity of life in Christ forever. The resurrection is our very assurance of everlasting life. So, how does the resurrection affect your daily life? Does it? Is it the ultimate truth to you? Is it so real that it leaves no doubt that God's plan, purpose, and power to save? Does it confirm to you? Excuse me. Does it confirm to you God's all-powerful nature and thus His rule over everything? And do you find your greatest and your only true security and assurance for now and forevermore? In that, in that resurrection, Paul defends for us the resurrection of Christ. And in today's passage, throughout the passage, we read this phrase often, if, then, if, then, if, then, he keeps making the case for the resurrection. And there are some other little but very important words as well. But and for. Who thought that little three-letter words could be so important? From verses 12 to 19, Paul lays out the fallacy of the faith if there is no resurrection of Christ from the, red, from the dead. He poses a question at the beginning of this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Huh. Even though there were over 500 witnesses to the empty tomb and to Christ's appearances, and I might add those were not ghostly appearances either, but remember, Thomas even touched the wounds of Jesus. Jesus ate real food right before them. This was not a ghostly appearance. It was a physical one. I want to give you, though, a little better flavor of what Paul said in verses 13 to 15 from the message version this morning. It's a paraphrased version to give a current day understanding. He writes, If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits, he says, that we passed on to you, verifying the resurrection, that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications, if there is no resurrection. Their face lies. Wow. But continuing back in the ESV, Paul wrote, 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Pretty strong words. I wonder, if the resurrection wasn't true, then how would I also trust that my sins were forgiven either? Sin is death. So to forgive sin is to give me rebirth into a new creature, even as Paul speaks in Ephesians. If all of that is true, if there is no resurrection, then in 18 we read, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Isn't that crushing? I mean, because we've been counting on seeing our loved ones later, the ones who have already passed along. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most Isn't that true, though? We would be pretty pathetic to come here, sit in these pews on a hot Sunday, if the power of God to resurrect is just a dream or a fable. But it's not. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to know, and us to know, that point. Otherwise, we have no genuine hope or truth. No assurance of salvation. Well, that's all the bad news. Now let's get to verse 20. You see, there's an order and purpose to all that God planned from the beginning. We read it in Genesis and we read it in John's Gospel. We read it pertaining to the end as well. Listen to the order and process laid out for the resurrection of all who believe. God laid it out from the beginning. Paul gives us good news and reminds us in verse 20 of the great truth and hope we have. Again, note all those little words that are so incredibly important. But, for, and then. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then Paul contrasts the dead man, Adam, with the man with the live man, Jesus, when he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. God has a perfect plan and a process here. What did he mean by Christ the first fruits? He had to rise first, then we are able to. But I thought this said it better out of this Bible God ref- reference again. What does first fruits mean to us? The first fruits refers to the first of the season's crops given by faithful Jewish people to God. Paul's use of the term here is that Jesus was the first of the crop of the dead to be resurrected. The first one. His was the prototype for what lies in store for believers in the future. In other words, that harvest has only just begun. As God raised Jesus back to life, he will collect all those who trust in Christ to life. 
always continue. Verse 24, he said, Paul writes, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Well, why does that need to happen? Verse 25 says, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, given that, we must wait. We have to wait for this plan to be completed. We have to keep the faith until this is completed. There are so many things prophesied throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament about resurrection, including Christ's reign for a thousand years, as well as the final lockup of Satan, when death will be no more. Are you waiting for that day? Amen. But this can't happen until God's plan is completed in His perfect timing. One of, the, one of those things that Matthew wrote about was part of how that would finally be completed. Matthew wrote, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, then the end will come. Not until his plan is complete. Not only this is this the order of things to come, but there is also an order of the things that have been and the things that are now. Excuse me for a minute. Paul lays out not only the order of the end time for us, but the order of things as they have been set from the beginning. We read, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted. Accepted. E-X. Who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then, and only then, the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. It's a lot of this and that, subjection, quite, a, quite an argument he's laying out there. Remember, though, from Paul's letter to the Philippians, equality with God was not something to be grasped. Though He was God, as the Son, He subjected Him to the Father willingly. Though God gives us so much, even us, even the ability to think, we too are still subject ourselves to Him. In this, though, there is great peace and great reward. The plan of God is not some random act of kindness. And I think as we look at this plan from beginning to end, we need to remember that. It's a well-thought-out plan, of course, where God knew what we would do if left to our own devices, if left to our own choices. He provided us Christ, His very own Son, to take the place of our sin and to remove the sentence of death forever. Good news, right? Excellent news, I would say. 
That son only did what the father told him. That power over death is the resurrection he provided, first for Christ, but also for those who would believe. Even today, though most of the world doesn't understand it, God has a perfect plan that was for yesterday, is for today, and will be forever. So that brings us to a very interesting part of this passage. Have you all been wondering about that baptizing, baptizing on behalf of the dead? I was. I'm glad that Adam gave me plenty of time to mull this over. Paul wrote this verse on the heels of explaining the importance of the resurrection. Otherwise, he says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Verse 29 at first to me seemed like a random statement out of the middle of nowhere until I considered, of course, the word otherwise. Otherwise. Then I realized it was part of Paul's case. Now, Paul could have addressed here the stupidity of the practice of baptism if there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, for the resurrection is symbolized in it. And the word otherwise comes on the heels of the resurrection order of God, Jesus, and all other things. If the dead are not raised, then neither is Christ. So why would we be baptized? A key ordinance of our very faith, though. So, I hate to tell you, but all of that isn't really what Paul's driving at here. Paul, while true about baptism... That's not what he's addressing. So what did Paul perhaps really address here? Why did he talk about people being baptized on behalf of the dead? Well, Ellicott, commentator I came across, writes, The only tenable interpretation is that there existed amongst some of the, Corinth, some of the Christians at Corinth a practice of baptizing a living person instead of some convert a convert who had died before the sacrament of baptism was administered. Such a practice existed among the Marcionites in the second century and still earlier amongst this sect we call the Corinthians. The idea evidently was that whatever benefit flowed from baptism might be thus vicariously secured for the deceased Christian. Good luck with that one. But I want to read just a little bit more here. So Chrysostom gives the following description of this. He says, After one had been prepared for baptism, but not actually yet baptized, and but had died, they hid a living man under the bed of the deceased. Then coming to the bed of the dead man, they spake to him and asked whether he would receive baptism. And he, of course, making no answer, the other replied in his stead. And so they baptized the living to the dead. Whew. We find no validity to this being the truth in the Scriptures. And Paul spoke against it, of course. 
I'm told a form of this practice is still practiced among the Mormons today, but on what basis, I don't know, and I didn't go there for today's sermon, because as you see, I found more than enough material. So how does this all tie together? We have to take the truth of the resurrection in the context of what Paul says. And so Paul speaks next of the risk of defending the resurrection if it isn't true. Why are we in danger every hour, he says. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Whoa. Bible Ref makes this comment about this. Paul tells the Corinthians in this verse that he boasts about their coming to Christ as one of the success stories of his ministry, which makes perfect sense. There's his pride in them, right? All of that would be worthless, though, he implies, if there was no resurrection from the dead. There would be no point in his dying every day, likely meaning that the that he faced the real possibility of death every day for the sake of Christ, though. A good, good, good reason. He goes on in verse 32 to say, What do I gain, if humanly speaking? I fought with beasts in Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I've heard that more than once in my life from folks that say, I don't need... I don't need what's beyond. I got, I got enough right here. In this part of the letter, though, Paul makes another strong case for the resurrection. Why do I say that? Because why would Christ or Paul or the other disciples or even people in third world countries today suffer and die for Christ unless this were true? Yes, I understand there are those who fiercely defend other faiths, even die for it, perhaps. How are they different from Paul and the Apostles? Well, they don't have what you and I have, for one, the truth of the Scriptures. There's nothing in Scripture promoting suicide bombers or any other things like that, such as we see today in the news and hear about. Theirs is built on another religious teaching. Paul's case is built on the reality and the truth of God's inspired Word. So if you take all of the defenses that were laid out in this chapter and in both the Old and the New Testament about resurrection, this stalwart defense of one's faith, even to death, further solidifies Paul's argument for resurrection. Finally, though, in verses 33 and 34, Paul warns them about hanging out with those who put forth false teachings, such as there being no resurrection, as we've been talking about. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I'm glad we had the good news before we got to here. Bad company ruins good morals. This is likely a line or a verse, actually, from a play. 
the Thais of Menander, and perhaps taken by Menander from a play of Euripides. Paul, though, isn't actually quoting it, and in itself it doesn't offer the least shadow of proof that Paul was familiar with classic literature. It is just such a line as he might have seen carved on a statue in Greece. He addressed the implications of the false teaching about there being no resurrection, that they didn't know God at all. That's how important the resurrection is to our faith. You see, our senses can be dull, and we can be smoothed into believing things about God and His character and His attributes and His Word that are not true. I say beware. Beware. And Paul was saying that too. It can happen so subtly without our even realizing it. It has happened to me when I picked up a book about this or that about the Christian faith and got partway through and said, something doesn't feel right about this. We have to ask, did the Bible really say what this author wrote? We have to be careful. Well, here's the bottom line of all of this. If Christ was not raised, then Paul's preaching of the gospel was false. And the faith of those who believed it was worthless. And all remain in their sins. And I would add, game over. Game over. We all perish. And as Paul quoted, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But, with a capital B, but, as Paul said, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and that is that excellent news again. Some teachers and websites would like to persuade us to believe what is contrary to the Scripture, including this topic of resurrection. Christ, though, was raised from the dead. And when He returns to those who are His, all who have died in Christ will be resurrected. Christ will be Excuse me, all those who have died in Christ will be resurrected to new life. Here's the truth. Christ arose, we will rise. And as we read, Christ will reign on earth and then deliver the kingdom to the Father. You know, for everything, there is a season, an appointed time. So wait patiently. Be diligent in your faith. And I'm preaching that to myself as well. We must learn the truth, not other people's rendition of it. One moment. Find my place now. Sorry. We'll now pause for station identification. All right. We must learn the truth, not other people's rendition of it. We must become like the Bereans who would compare what God preached to what the Scriptures said so we don't find ourselves deceived or dulled to the truth or unmoved by it even. No 
We need to know our Bible. As we wrap this up, but don't, don't leave me yet, but as we wrap this up, I want to look at the resurrection from a slightly different direction. So what do you deem impossible in your life? In creation? In your faith? Do you believe that God is capable of resurrection, of healing, of forgiveness, of deliverance, of all of the above? Sure. I contemplated as I considered this passage, is it any harder for God to raise us out of even our most stalwart sins or bad habits than it is for God to raise the dead? Let me put it a little differently. Knowing how stubborn I am, sometimes, well, okay, daily, I would say resurrection is not harder than moving me out of my own way. If you have overcome some of the challenges of sin or other obstacles in your life by His Spirit and His power, and you knew at that time you had absolutely no power or will on your own to change, and yet God delivered you to victory anyway. Well, then you have then have you not tasted the power of God to resurrect, even while we're still on earth? Resurrection power occurs in ways now, just as it will at the end of the resurrection spoken of in today's passage. We are old dead creatures, but now we were old dead creatures, but now we are alive. Paul in his writings to Romans drives home the importance of all of this, both now and then. Paul, I want to close today with a passage from Romans 6, 3 to 10. Paul is asking a question that begins, is making a statement that begins with the word or. But he writes here, and everything else except for the or will make perfect sense with what we've talked about. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Now, too. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, though I feel like it at times. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ has raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Go today in the truth, the reality, the power, most of all the assurance of the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what 
Paul recorded for us here. Thank you, Lord, for his willingness to die every day, Lord, that they would know the truth and that the truth would set them free. Lord, be with us in the same way. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for this time of fellowship together. Thank you for your word. And go with us now and help us also to rise again. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and join us as we sing one more song to end.